This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fern Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a great guest for you today. Interested to hear uh, her input on the market. It's uh, December 5th as we record this, so lots of turmoil in the banking markets. She's a loan consultant, helps originate loans from a number of lenders. She works with Eastern Union. Please help me welcome my guest, Emma Norman. Hi, Ferd and audience. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, Ferd and I made a connection instantly over LinkedIn um, pretty fast, and then we started seeing each other back and forth at various conferences. Um, I do specialize in mobile home park loans. That's my jam. Um, When I started three years ago, I came in with a concept that that was going to be my full focus. And so here we are. I've had the tremendous luck of getting fantastic mentorship through uh, Eastern Union, as well as my clients, as well as partners as well. So I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) <laughs> let's put yeah. it that way well great well thanks thanks for joining so to maybe give us some insights of what are you guys seeing in today's market and what are the typical r- rates look like in terms and and i know we've talked offline about you know the new hurdles so to speak to get to approval with different loan lenders so i'm, I'm curious just get your insights on the market oh so um right now great news uh <laughs> The rates have dropped. Uh, We're looking at about anywhere from, there's been a 50 um, BIP drop in the mobile home park sector. Um, It obviously depends on the asset itself, the sponsors, and what's going on with the lender themselves, as well as on a national level, how they're being affected there too. So um, one case we're working on right now, um, when he first started back in, I want to say May, we did get him a great loan, um, agency loan at 7.4. Today, his rate has dropped to 6.5. Wow. What's, what type of, lo- what size of loan is that? Um, so, so what um, agency lenders really like or approved lenders rather is at least at the 2 million mark. And he made that mark. So that's where they like to start. Um, I know a lot of the, you know, the talk about all of us brokers and all owners and things of that such is that you want to start at a million. Um, In the case of agency, however, you do want to start at 2 million and up. They just to get you at the top of the stack, because yeah, because my you know my recollection on this because I've I've done some agency loans less than two million. I think I've done one less than two million. So I know that the the thresholds a million. I've even heard of them making exceptions to seven fifty in some limited yes. limited instances. But they have a certain allocation. They got to get so many done. You know, use it or lose it, so to speak. And they want to get them done by the end of the year. And um, yes. Yes. They they prefer the bigger ones, right? Because, you know, two million dollar loan is half as much work as a one million dollar loan in theory, and they get a knockout too. Now, end of the year, are they you running into any trouble with lenders running out of allocations? Or because in the past, I know if you, if you get one approved early in the year, they, they seem to be 
more favorable because they're like knocking them out early and then they can take vacation after Thanksgiving, so to speak. That's 100% correct. You know, we're all human here. <laughs> we have our families that we've been, you know, that we've had to fit out throughout the year and they've reserved their family time for the end of the year. Um, they would prefer to get those uh, loans closed before the 21st, before the 28th. Um, and that's just energy, right? That's not also including liquidity on their end. Just like Ferd had said, they, their buckets are running dry by the end of the year. And if you're looking to carry over, that doesn't necessarily mean they're willing to look at it. Right. Exactly. Now, that's for that's specific their agency. For, for our listeners who don't yes. know, that's, typically, that's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. What about, you know, local lenders and regional lenders you work with? I mean, they don't really have the same level of annual allocation, do they? They're more just, they look more at the borrower, look more at what their existing portfolio is. And then they're more concerned on some liquidity and deposits and things of that sort, right? A hundred percent. First of all, it's great being on the podcast with you because you were on such a high level <laughs> as far as that goes. And yes, that's exactly correct. Um, with local lenders, you they are going to look to buffer that time a little longer because, um, you know, the two week to four week with local community union, um, community banks, as well as credit unions, they're they're looking for that added due diligence side on their side as well, like you as an investor. You want that extra time to make sure what you're going to invest in is actually a great asset, like the numbers say, right? So they are going to look um, to look for right now, an end of January, mid-February closing. It's still a really great closing, you know, because if you can get it closed 45 to 60 days, that's like fast track for um, CRE, commercial real estate, fast track. So um, when you're first getting into this commercial arena, that's one of the hardest things to understand, especially if you're coming from single family, for example, and or multifamily too. They do relatively quick closings. Um, with mobile home parks, that simply isn't the case. The fact is, um, a lot of lenders do not understand mobile home parks right. whatsoever. So if you're pitching your deal to lenders who first off don't understand, and then you're trying to rush them, they're hard, they're going to give you hard stops pretty quickly. So you have to be patient when you speak to that um, loan officer. And I hate to say it this way, but if you come in a position of I'm getting a favor, that gets farther in the process. What do you mean by that? But you're getting a favor. Well, I understand that uh, you know, um, as an as an investor myself, um, it is important that you meet these milestones and you meet the the timeline because you have to deal with all of the soft touches all around you. I get that. However, there is not a lot of MHP lenders. Period. You right. know, if we're if per hundred, I shop out maybe five will say, okay, we'll take a look at it, you know, and then maybe we can push them around for like two or three term sheets. So when I say, look at it as they're doing me a favor, I'm not saying kowtow or anything because you can't, right? This is your investment. You just can't Got afford it. that. I'm just saying be likable and you'll get farther. Okay, so in general, the process would be I would come to you and say, hey, I'm looking for a financing for this new acquisition or this new refinance. Let's assume it's a, a new acquisition. It's $2 million. I'm looking for a loan. I'm 
I'm aiming for a 75% loan at a million five. Um, maybe you could stomach a 70, probably can't stomach a 60 or 65. So what I come to you and then you, when you say shop, it says in your, your processes, you have lender relationships and you reach out to them and you request a term sheet. And then some of them say nothing and they don't respond. Some of them say thanks, but no thanks. And some of them say yes. And here's a term sheet, which has exceptions of, you know, and, and outs for the lender. But basically you then try to bring me several offers, if you will, from lenders. And then we begin to proceed down a path, typically with one of them, through underwriting, through a loan committee of some sort. And then ultimately, we would get a uh, preliminary loan commitment approved with committee, and then eventually a final loan commitment, and then at closing, a funding of our loan. Is that pretty much the process? That is pretty much the process, yes. Um, I, I will describe some of the hiccups you can expect along the way. Um, for example, uh, it is very regionally ba based what the lender will um, come back to you with. Um, it is not uncommon to get 80 to 75% LTV in the South. Not at all uncommon. However, it is a little un uncommon for anything um, <clears throat> At 70 to 75 right now, you got a 50-50 split um, Midwest, okay? What do you mean a 50-50 split? Meaning half you, the banks won't do it? Um, Yes. So exactly. they want to do like 60 or 65 LTV? No, they want to do 70. Okay. And then, yeah, that's, that's for now, right now, for us at Eastern Union, that's a hard stop. We're not really looking to bring anyone back um, anything less than that unless you are capable, of course, unless you're syndicating or you have a fund, an equity fund, then you've already dictated you want a non-recourse and you and or any of those things. So what Ferd's example was is a great example of someone who is expecting to have a recourse loan, which is mean, means you're gonna guarantee, you and your partners are gonna guarantee, everybody over 20% is gonna guarantee. Okay, so in the Midwest, 70 to 75 is not a hard ask. Okay, um, when you get into, let's say, Wyoming and let's say Idaho, you're looking a little closer to 65. Okay. Okay, so that's maybe one of the hiccups. So let's say you have all of these standards that you expect to get back on your term sheet, not including closing date. Okay, and you come to me with all of those expectations, and then I will let you know, hey, in this market, that's not necessarily what I can come back with. You know, maybe you you have other options and you can explore those options, which that's my job. I'm here to advise you on what's correct, what is actually happening in the market from my perspective. Okay, I always build in that you have a different perspective, and that's great. So that's one of the hiccups. I then go to evaluate via income approach. I only do income approach. I'm sorry, I will not, I will not do cap rates. <laughs> I understand that as an investor, we do use cap rates and I totally get that. However, a lender isn't, that's not gonna play well for you because when the appraiser comes in and gets their broker opinion, so on and so forth, I have noticed that the cap rates are never going to go the way the buyer wants it to go, the sponsor wants it to go. So I only use income approach. And when so you use income, use can I jump in? Because yes, in general, with an in valuation or appraisal, I'm going to take the income 
the net operating income divided by a cap rate. That's why I come up with my value or my price. So there's inherently there's a cap rate in the formula. But when you say you're using income approach, does that mean you're you're sizing the loan based on the in-place income and a debt coverage ratio, say 1.25 debt coverage ratio, and then you back into the maximum loan proceeds? Yes. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's, and that's how that's how lenders yeah, that's how articulating that. Lender, yeah, lenders often do that. Into in I'm curious on differences from in today's market here in December of 23 versus say six, 12 months ago. How has that coverage ratio changed? And how has the lender um made modifications, if you will, as it pertains to uh value vacant pads, which is zero on an income approach? But then what about value of rent increases? Like let's say the rents on this $2 million park or 300, but the market's 400. Is the lender going to size my loan based on the in place 300, or are they going to give me somewhere between the 300 and the market 400? So they, they just like you should do as an investor, they're not going to, they're not going to value your upside. Okay. So you're not getting any of them that'll even, because I've seen, I've had loans where if the deal is thin based on, you know, it's low occupancy, for example, and below market rents. I've had banks say, we'll give you a waiver of one year below the 1.25. Let's say it's 1.01, which is pretty thin, but then you have occupancy goals. And I've seen lenders sometimes be like, all right, we'll give you credit for a $30 rent increase, but we're not going to give you credit for a hundred. So, so today you're saying that's not the case, but was that the case six, 12 months ago? And, and was it normal or rare, I guess? Okay, so um, I'm going to illustrate Ferd's uh, perspective and things right now. <laughs> he is a very strong sponsor. He's oh. a very strong investor in his in the MHP. No, don't don't stop. Keep going. <laughs> so his I wish numbers, my wife. I wish my wife was here to hear all these nice things you're saying about me. His numbers and his abilities with his lenders are going to be starkly different from a person who's just starting out. Um, his position gives him a lot of leverage. I do have other clients uh, that are in exactly Ferd's position. I am speaking to the audience who is at, at about five to 10 parks. These are this their expectations. When you're above 10 to 20 parks, your equations do change. Lenders are willing to work with you longer. They're willing to work. And if you happen to be a darling who's been in the business for over 20 years, they're just willing to work with you a little bit longer. They're willing to give those waivers. And, and of course, that also is heavy, heavily built upon the relationships already built by the broker sure. or by, by the client and the lender. So what you're saying is exactly true. For your position, that's exactly true. For a lot of a lot of people aren't quite in that position, and so that's why it's so important to find those seasoned investors. Like I constantly say on Facebook, my Facebook group, and I constantly say wherever I can. That gives you the instant leverage in any conversation with another person in the arena and or lenders and brokers. Okay, it so just good insight. Our job easier. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Um, some good ins good insights there. So follow-up question. Do you typically attempt, you're not going to do this with agency lenders, I'm sure, but we're, about, we're most likely sure, but on regional or local banks, if the property has some infill needs or some CapEx needs, are you able to push the lender to get some funding for like a line of credit for infill? 
you know, which would be an alternative to say 21st mortgages cash program, and then a line of credit or construction loan for some capex, say repairing the roads for a hundred thousand, which which if approved would be a substitute for you know more post closing equity. How how is is that a hard no? for banks or you know if it's your first deals that are hard no and it's your 10th deals that are maybe how's that go um so i have had a deal in the past where we did do a line of credit for a person who just had one one park the asset itself proved to be very valuable in that sense um he had it for about five years and it just made sense so just to describe what um what sort of investors uh lenders really like and to be able to give you that extra money for infill and capex um experience they really i'm sure you've heard this over and over again they really like experience whether that's measured in 20 years with two parks or it's measured with 20 parks in a year they love both okay those are their two darlings okay um, and if you're in this sector, you're going to fall into one of those at some point in your career. Um, so the possibility of you getting that second loan is um, for CapEx, for infills, is higher if you manage to separate the original um, contract from your the homes and the, lot, the lots, okay? Two L, you make two different offers. That really helps you out. If you, if I say to you as a broker, I'm sorry on this particular deal, I can't get you that loan, and you're but you're able to pitch it to other lenders who will who can evaluate that and or maybe just give you that particular um, smaller percentage of what you're looking for. There's also earnouts um, where you know you would initially put up all of the funds to do your infills your capex and you go back and you show the lender your scope of work is all has been completed and they will reimburse you we do both we do those angles okay. all the time interesting so an earn out in that in that instance is i front the money but when i when i deliver let's say i put up a hundred thousand for road then they'll finance me for the hundred i get my capital back i can use it for something else exactly okay. exactly yeah, we've had we've had some success with lenders, not a, not on the first loan typically, but where we you know ideally. So what I tend to do and recommend to people is, if you're going to a new bank, take them a deal that's kind of down the fairway that doesn't have as much hair on it, and build a relationship. And then on then you can later go back to that bank and say, hey, I got another deal, and they're like, great, we love working with you, and say, well, this one's different. This one, I need some CapEx loans. I need a construction loan. This one, I need a line of credit for the homes. And then the next tranche would be, I need a set of a revolving guidance or guidance loans where when I rent the homes, I can then put them on you know their own individual term out loans, say seven or 10 year ammo. Um, and that's been helpful for us. I haven't been able to get local banks to finance the end buyers. So that's where you've got your, your PEPs and your triads and your Zippy and your 21st mortgage to finance the end buyer. Um, so that's just kind of maybe a tip for people structurally. Um, what percentage of banks are doing non-recourse loans? Any of them besides agency or CMBS? So, um, it's been tough on the, on the ground as far as community banks and, um, credit unions go. 
However, the lower your LTV, the higher your probability of getting yeah. non-recourse. So a 50% loan is a maybe, a 75% loan is a heck no, basically. Basically, yes. Okay. That's what you What about liquidity requirements? I know, you know, I feel like a year ago, I never even heard that term. Now it's like you make a loan request and they're like, well, we need to have deposits, not liquidity, I misspoke, deposit requirements. Um we're now, I had a client recently, I don't remember the numbers, but it was something like $3 million loan. They had to put a million five in checking, at the, in checking and they had to keep a minimum balance of a million dollars for like 18 months. And so I'm like, wait a second. So you're, <laughs> bar you're borrowing a million five at seven and a half or eight and a half percent. And then you're going to turn around and lend it, most of it back. Or it was like 50% Exactly. Borrowing my own money. So, exactly. um, I've seen I've seen that a lot, and I've also seen deals in the last ninety days. I've seen more deals die from the lender than I have in the last several years combined. Where you know, in one deal in particular, the lender pulled the plug on my client the week of closing, and the stated reason was we don't like that state because it has a high concentration of oil. And my client's like, it's been in the same state all along. You knew that you knew that you knew that ninety days and. $75,000 of, you know, costs ago. And, right. And it was infuriating. In that case, the lender ended up later caving and saying, okay, fine, we'll do 50% loan. So we had to go back to the seller for the other 20 or 25 and ask for a seller carry. And in this case, the lender allowed it. The seller agreed to it. And the seller had the wherewithal to do it because they didn't have much debt on the property to begin with. So it was kind of a perfect scenario. And it didn't even delay closing. It was like, we found out on a Monday, we closed, we we're supposed to close on Friday. We still closed on Friday. Like we got the, you know, second mortgage teed up and everybody agreed and updated the HUD and still got it done. But that was kind of a tumultuous, um, you know, fi final 10 yard line, so to speak for the client. So how, what are you seeing today versus a year ago, as far as deposit requirements and or um, deals falling out based on lender discretion? That deal did close. Just to clarify, you did, did get it. It did close. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was, which, but I was, I, I mean, but I had two others. One from the same. We had three in like a week period. Um, the three different clients. Two of them were the same lender. One of those two closed. The third was a different lender that I had never heard of, and they just, they just pulled the plug as well. And I've had several others where the bank will come back last minute and say, "We're still in, but we need to lower the LTV." 10%. And I'm selling oh. a deal. I'm selling a deal right now. And the buyers got a loan and I asked him, it was the same lender. I was like, you can need to be careful. And he said, well, we're only doing 40% LTV because we have a bunch of equity in our fund. So mm -hmm. that was a non-issue then. The bank's like, okay, well, if you're putting 60% down, um, no big deal. Right. Well, that sounds like a great deal for you. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. knock on knock on wood. It hasn't closed yet. I don't <laughs> I don't count those chickens till they've asked. You don't count those. I, don't, right? I even get nervous. I sent my analyst something last night about, hey, start the email to investors, draft it for me. Where's the money going? Where's the proceeds? Here was the final return and yield. And we've got hurdles in there. And here's my share and your share and your individual share. And here's where we're gonna wire you the money. But I'm like, because you got to do some of that prep. Because okay. you don't be sitting on their money for a long time post closing. Mm -hmm. I'd like to send out the email, you know, the day of or the morning after closing. But mm -hmm. I'm like, even nervous drawing it up, 
you know, right mm-hmm. now because it's like I don't want to jinx it, um, right? Because right. that you know this happened too. But so anyway, I'm I'm rambling as no, my, no, no, as, no. as, I, as I, is I my discretion on my podcast. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll hand it over to you. What, 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 what are you seeing? Mar- what are you seeing in the marketplace? Um. So yes, a lot of the depository relationships are being requested. Um. As as a broker consultant. If it gets into <coughs> parameters where it just doesn't make sense for our client, we just simply won't bring it back to you. Um, so as a client, if you you should be more specific because it is your deal. I should be more specific because I am your consultant. But for ex- if we find the depository relationship just doesn't make sense for you, we most likely won't even convey it f- to you. So just do the simple process of saying why and make your consultants be specific. That's very important for you, for you to utilize this future data for your next acquisition as well. So yes, um, I would say in the market, wow, now that I really think about it, about 75% are asking for those type of relationships. Yes. Wow. Yes. And of course, that's highly dependent on the bank itself, whether they have the initial illiquidity themselves. Right. And that's part of our jobs as consultants and brokers is to understand and know that part of the lender. Okay. Yeah, I had I had dinner last week with I'm in a real estate group, CCIM here in Kansas City, and I had there's. You're in Kansas City. I'm in Kansas City. Yeah. City. Yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm, there's like nine of us on the board of this organization. So we had our annual meeting and dinner last week, and there are four bankers on the board, and we were asking each other. They're asking their terms, and and some one of the banks said, "Well, I'm I'm instructed right now to quote terms designed to not get any loans." And, and he's like, yeah, they're like we're <laughs> like not. Honest. I don't remember the number, but he's like, "Yeah, we're at like 500 bips over SOFR," and the other bankers are like. <laughs> Is anybody taking that? He goes, no, none. But we're I'm giving resp- we're giving responses. The people are staying busy looking at deals. But yeah, we don't want to make any loans for the rest of the year. So we're just like, we're not saying no. We're just giving terms that make it look like we're active, but we're not. And I was like, wow. Um, so th- I see that. And, and to me, the deposit relationship somewhat is like that. Because at some point, if I commit to your bank to put X dollars in deposits, but then I want to get a new loan from somebody else's bank and they require 1.5 X in deposits. At some point, there's not enough X, you know, in my liquidity. And it's like, I, I can't violate, especially if these have tails on them or like you have to have an average balance where it's like, I can show proof of funds that I got a hundred dollars in checking, but I got a requirement to keep a hundred dollars over there for the next mm-hmm. 18 months. So I can't move $90 in checking to you. So I feel like at some point, the more restrictions, especially post-closing these banks put on us, the harder it's going to be to to work with a new bank. Right. Um, completely. They are all f- focused on their client relationships as it is right now. So it's just another, I hate to say it, but sometimes just like we have our weasel clauses as investors, that's part of their deal as well. If you come in with the perspective of everybody's here to get, you know, their best deal as well, and just don't take it personal, just move on and fast and hard as you can. 
um, make sure to have at least two or two lenders in your background that you're always talking to on the same deal. Just caveats wherever you go or like, yeah, if I'm using that correctly. No, I, I agree. I mean, I have one lender in particular I I do a lot of business with, but I've I've had to get other lenders because of uh, caps at that bank. But then I've learned like, okay, send the new lender the easier deals, which mm -hmm. frustrates the main lender a little bit. But like, look, I got to get this one approved and you can't participate this out, you know, as easily. And so, yeah, it's always having you know, more than one lender relationship is, is important for sure. It is. It really is. Because that weasel clause you mentioned, I mean, here's the weasel clause that I've saw. It just, I've had a couple of clients recently that the banks pulled the plug last minute and they're of course fired up. And they're like, can we sue them or they, you know, what do we, what recourse do we have against them? And I'm like, did you guys get, sometimes not involved in their bank process. So I, I said, on this case, I said, did you guys get a loan commitment? Yes. I said, send it to me. And it says all big caps, preliminary loan commitment. And everyone's like, oh, see, it's right there. <laughs> and I say, see how it says preliminary? Yeah. And I go, and I just go to the bottom, like page right. four. And it says, this is a non-binding letter of intent or preliminary loan commitment subject to the bank's final underwriting, including appraisal, underwriting, and any other requirements the bank deems fit. This shall not be a binding loan commitment or a commitment to fund or lend unless you get a commitment to lend or a final binding loan commitment from lender. Right. And I look at the client and I'm like, that's all you need to know right there. That means you have nothing. Yes, exactly. They were, they were flirting with you. And he's like, yeah, but in one of these banks is really infuriating because they made him put up a $50,000 deposit mm -hmm. and they went and spent like $46,000 on third-party reports. Yes. including the including they ordered um zoning reports even though we had done zoning as a law firm and had even, you know, superior zoning letters and research on these uh, these cities and this it was a small portfolio and this bank spent his money and then the last minute says we're out and didn't give a reason they know they won't they don't have to and i'm like sorry man you just lost forty six thousand dollars and depending on the seller's willingness or underlying debt, seller finance may not even be an option here. Even if it was desirable to you, it may not be practically an option. The master lease and other strategies have their own hair on them. So um, if it's a new bank, I just say tread carefully and and always have a second bank in your hip pocket if you can. Obviously, you can't get too far down the field. You're spending money and all this. But I had a client that was going down the field with both of with two banks. Mm -hmm. They were spending money with two banks and it ended up working out because the what? first bank bailed or the first bank said yes, but then they dropped the LTV to like 50 or 60. So the, and the, we already had a um, title commitment listing yeah. the lender and we were ready to rock. And all of a sudden the client sends a title company email. I didn't realize they were working a second bank. They didn't tell me. And they just say, substitute this bank, go with this bank. And I was just like, what? And, nice. and then they, and they plugged in the second bank. And the deal ended up not closing, actually, ironically, for other <laughs> for other reasons. So they ended, up, they ended up going over two, but but it was it was a unique strategy that they were working two banks at once. And I was like, the and they didn't even tell the first bank, like the yeah. first bank would be pissed, but they're like, yeah, but the first bank backed out anyway. Hated us, so yeah, it goes both ways. Right, it definitely does. Um, that's just the nature of this business. I hate to put it any other way, but it is the nature. So what other tips can you give our borrowers, you know, to, to get themselves in a position, obviously having great income, great net worth and perfect financials is, is, is the easy part, but like, other, other than that, what, um, what can you do to stand out or improve your chances of, you know, not being left at the altar by the lender? 
Right. Um, so one of which would be, and I, I say this a lot, responsiveness. Um, they are going to be your future partner. You're trying to make them your future partner by having them invest in you all that money. So treat them as such. Um, responsiveness is everything. Um, when they give direction, what would really streamline your process is to make sure as best as you can without giving up your hand um, to deliver those goods, okay? If you're getting closer to closing, um, know that, and you've decided on that one lender, you have to go 110% to get that to the closing line, a closing finish line, okay? So responsiveness is number one, 100%. Uh, number two is please do expect to keep all of the paperwork that you've been submitting over the process of closing to be updated. Um, it needs to be, their rent rolls and their P&Ls do need to be updated. Expect that request and have it handy. Um, do have a clear idea and understanding of your CapEx versus your repairs and maintenance. Be able to articulate that through your P&Ls as well as in conversation. That way you can get that cost basis back, you know, some of those costs back. And um, they, it will just solidify your loan at the terms they've already agreed upon. It will not necessarily merit loan more loan proceeds. So again, be willing to let that go. So the less emotion you get involved in any of this process, the more likely you are to end up with the money. That's my second point. My third point is, you want to be at the top of that stack, bring in heavy hitters with you and or at least reasonably seasoned investors with you who understand how to talk to underwriters, who understand how to talk to lenders and brokers, investment sales and or mortgage brokers. That will get you to the top, top of the stack as well. Understand your market. Really, truly understand your market. Um, that way, any angle they throw at you, because you understand your market, you will have something to pitch back. You have to have that great defense, right? If they're, they're trying to tell you, oh, there's no future um, population or influx of population, but you have a person on the ground that you know through your due diligence, they're inviting a Forbes 200 company or Forbes 500 company, and that's going to make all the difference, and that's underground you have to be able to pitch that, okay? So you need somebody like that on your team that would get you to the top. Yeah, those are good points. Uh, one thing I'd like to add too that we've done a pretty good job on is just, I'd say, be organized and then have your ducks in a row. So beyond just responsiveness, when we make a loan request, we try to make it where the bank says, that's everything I needed, thank you. <laughs> that's that's kind of nice for once, you know. <laughs> right? I wish all my clients were like that. If you can get that sort of response, mm -hmm. you're winning. So yeah. what, what, what does that mean? So we'll send a loan request and say, you know, dear lender, please see the attached re loan request. And we've learned, we, we just ask for a loan. We say, here's our terms. We don't just say, what will you give me? We say, here's what we want. And we'll put a little wiggle room in there. We'll ask for ADLTV. No one, they, it's easier for them to say, 
75 now than if we ask for nothing. And then they, they're looking at 65, 70, 75. So we'll ask for 80. We ask for the line of credit. We ask for the guidance loans. We ask for the construction loan. And we say, here's a source of funds that we anticipate, including equity, including equity by the general partners. Here's the guarantors. Here's the use of funds. Here's a CapEx budget. Here's a profit and loss and a discounted cash flow analysis with certain hypotheticals and assumptions. Here's the business plan. Mm -hmm. Here's the market. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the LLCs and the operating agreement, the articles organization, the EIN. Yes. Here is the resume and mm -hmm. the personal financial statement and the schedule of real estate owned from the key principles. Um, we have all this ready. To, we have all this ready to go. Um, and, you know, and we'll, we'll, as part of the business plan, we'll reference there's a new Home Depot two blocks away. There's a, you know, there's yes. the, the university is is expanding, you know, whatever the stats are that's favorable. Here's our infill plan, as you'll see, set out in our profit and loss. If we hand that all the bank, it makes it makes it easy for the analyst to get it prepped for committee. Mm -hmm. I've had a, I've had lenders even say, like, I just forwarded your stuff and that was my committee report. You know, like they, instead, <laughs> instead of them instead of them having to put it all together, well, then you get speed as well. And speed, you know, it's one of the variables involved in a deal. So yeah. if I can tell the seller that I can uh, have a 30 day DD and a 30 day close instead of a 60 and a 45. And if I can say no financing contingency, yeah. well, that gets me the top of the heap. Well, then I'm have a lower price mm -hmm. seller, which makes it easier. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, like things to give to the bank. I want to make sure my PSA has a requirement that the seller must provide me a updated T12 each month, yeah. updated rent roll each month so that I can give it to the lender. And yeah. if you can do those sort of things, it just makes it easier to get to the top of the heap and get a fast approval. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's been part of our methodology and it's, it's worked out fairly well. Um, because if I get a quick, if I get a quick, no, yeah, you know, I've been told no before. Right. Yeah. I get a quick, no, oh. I still have time. It's, mm -hmm. it's when, it's when like some of these clients I talked about recently, they got a, a $46,000 later. No, mm -hmm. that's hard to overcome. One, you just spent forty six thousand dollars, you know. But two, you've you've spent time. You've got, you've got deal fatigue on your end. Deal fatigue yeah. on the seller. Um, yeah, you know, sellers often don't operate at a hundred percent once no. they're in escrow. They just coast. They um, do. They're yeah. they're looking for that check before it's you yeah. know before it's earned. Yeah, we had a we had a part. <laughs> the closing got delayed like three weeks, and we had not inspected it in the last three weeks, and we probably should have, right? Right. We show up on the day of closing with a whole crew of guys ready to do all this work. And then we find out the third party mowing company didn't show up in August. Oh no. And then and the grass was four weeks tall. There's like 80 oh. vacant lots. So there's grass everywhere. And we look at the manager who we were going to retain and we said, what the heck is going on? It didn't look like this. The last three times I visited, she said, well, as soon as you guys let your inspection period wave and we're proceeding to close, he told me to spend zero dollars. I fired the mowing guy. We didn't demo that house that was scheduled. We didn't cut down that tree that is fault that apparently is falling on a house. We just are spending zero dollars. So it's your problem. So I'm like, okay, lesson learned. Right. Uh, you know, and the contract had some provision about they were supposed to continue to maintain and operate. Right. But not mowing the grass wasn't going to warrant terminating the contract and walking exactly. away or putting them in breach. It not just was all. like, had I known that. We would have so then we call the mowing guy and he goes, Oh, I got a day job. I can't come till Saturday. Well, it's like Tuesday. We look bad with the new residents. 
Yeah. We might not go and buy out, buy a lawnmower, fire the mowing guy, buy a lawnmower and get somebody to mow it the next three days to get it caught up just to not look like slumlords. <laughs> it is really hard when you're doing both sides and in your case, all sides, it sounds like. And it's hard to keep your back office organized when you're busy in, in the dirt, literally in, under the homes, you know, allocating all the meters and so on and so forth. It is really tough to keep your back office straight. If you can find a team that will always keep that front and center, it, you will have higher probabilities there, right? Um, so the makeup of your, of your partnership and the makeup of um, your venture in any shape or form must include someone who truly understands that side of the business and is able to work on it at at impulse whenever called upon. That will that relates directly to what Ferd's point Ferd's point is is speed, you know. So making sure you have that back office, which is tough. Some because for example, there's a lot of park owners who have had over 200 sites for for a few years. And it's been streaming, humming along with the processes they already have, and they got it seller financing, okay? All of a sudden, there's this lender who's very, very, you know, on point, very particular about how everything has to be presented to them so they can get it through the committee. And it's kind of off-putting in a way because you still have to get those demos done you still have to get those doors ordered you got to get those metrometers in you got you know you got to make sure that you get your um bill backs and you your recapture rate and um, because the paper has to look good for your optimal load proceeds these are all things that you're going to have to learn how how to negotiate as you go along and the better you get at it the more revealing it will be to your partners your your investors as well as your lender so yes these are all things we're all hand you're handling as well everybody is yeah yeah good points any other tips or advice before we jump emma and, and then also where can people find you um, so um, tips and advice, I guess I, I started a million and up, sorry, <laughs> unless I've known you for a couple of years, then we, we can talk um, as far as that's your yeah. fee, that, that's your commission. <laughs> you're, you're more expensive than me <laughs> no 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 million dollar I, loan size um the asset per the you know i meant the loan proceeds um eastern union is one percent um that is the market rate at where you go along um advice always find be the surround yourself with people who are dramatically smarter than you and you'll go a long way that's the best advice ever. Um, and then I got new stuff coming up, if that's okay. If I plug right here. Sure. Okay. Um, my sister and I are starting a very informal podcast, not necessarily as honed in as like Fur's podcast or any number of very great podcasts. Um, and we're just sitting around and we're just going to chit chat and get to know each other for networking. Um, also, do expect um, a newsletter of some kind in the next couple of months as well. Yep. And it'll probably be under the Facebook banner of MHP Investors Network. All right. Okay. Sounds good. All, All right. right. Oh, and I'm going to be at Louisville. Are you going to Louisville? 
I am re- I am registered, so I'm currently planning on going. I'm not getting a booth because I'm I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to make it or not, but I'm currently planning on going with Michelle um in my office and then so right now the two of us are going, but I don't know about others right now. Oh, okay. We're definitely going. We love that show. If you haven't been, definitely go. Um there's a lot of great networking opportunities. There's the great thing about this sector is everybody's so willing to help you. Um, definitely get, you know, get some space with whomever you can so you can have conversations like this. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. Thanks, Emma. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.